Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Okay, my name is Roger Stone. I live in Bonfield, Vermont. This is our question asker. And no, he's not that Roger Stone. Although this Roger Stone says he did used to get phone calls for the other guy when they both lived in Manhattan. Anyway, this Roger Stone is retired from the advertising industry. Oh, quite retired. Um, I'm 79 years old and uh, right there in the prime uh, age group for having some bad things happen to you if you happen to contract COVID. Stone lives in Bonville, a tiny village in the small town of Winhall. And he says there's no Instacart where he lives, no for-profit delivery services, not for food, not for meds. And he says policymakers haven't done much to help older folks like him stay safe at home. So when he heard the feds were starting to discuss how a vaccine should be distributed, Stone tuned in. And realized that it's really a question. It's just like not a, uh, a slam dunk that the old people would get uh, a high priority right behind health care workers and, uh, and essential workers. That had him worried. Worried enough to write in to Brave Little State. What's on my mind is uh, how the state is going to set priorities for the vaccines when they become available. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy, back again with my colleague, Emily Corwin. Hi, Angela. And Emily, this is so sad. This is actually your last BLS episode. I know. <laughs> You're heading off to do a very prestigious journalism fellowship. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going down to Cambridge for the Neiman Fellowship. And it's nine months of studying and then nine months of fieldwork. And I'm just super excited. Well, we're really going to miss your reporting on the show. Um I'm curious, what has your favorite episode been? I think it was the sheriff's episode. Mm. I got to spend so long at the state archives dredging up these, like, fantastically interesting uh, little dramas from from Vermont history. Uh, Maybe second place, maybe first place is the uh, Remembering Black Communities episode about the black farmers in Hinesburg. Mm -hmm. But I got to say my... my all-time favorite. Uh, I didn't report at all. It's yours. It's about the Vermont accents. Oh. If anybody has not heard the Vermont accents episode, they should go listen to that right now. And we should give credit to our BLS co-founder, Al Keefe, for that episode. Totally right. So everyone who's listening, go back and uh, check those out if you missed them. But for now, this episode is about a vaccine for COVID-19. A real question on my mind is what priority will be given to older age Vermonters? I am one of those. And how is this going to be settled out? We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. 
Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. All right. Let's get up to speed on the global effort to get a vaccine for COVID-19 to folks like you and me. According to a handy guide published by the New York Times, a number of teams began work on vaccines about eight months ago in January. After testing on mice and monkeys, the first safety trials began in a small group of humans in March. And today we're hearing from the Seattle woman who was the first to receive the injection. As of mid-August, there are more than 165 vaccines in various stages of development. About 30 are in human trials. Eight are in phase three trials, being tested on tens of thousands of people for safety and effectiveness. Two have already been approved for limited use. And the federal government has been funding mass production of a number of vaccines. A Cambridge biotech company is getting nearly half a billion dollars to speed up. Optimists say one or more vaccines could be available to the public by the end of the year. Others say sometime next year is more realistic. That's TBD. But whenever it is available, there probably won't be enough to go around. Not right away. As for who gets access first, Roger Stone isn't the only one who wants to know. I'm I'm hoping that I would be on that list, um, coming from cancer and working in schools. Heidi Hopper works as a paraeducator in South Burlington's elementary schools. I, um, last year, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And although her treatment went well, and she's now one year cancer-free, chemotherapy damages the immune system. This semester, Hopper's colleagues plan to be back in schools, teaching in person, while Hopper works from home. I would love to be back in school with people, you know? I'm, I'm a people person, so it will be very hard for me if I don't get the vaccine. Neither Hopper nor Stone think they should be first in line. In fact, almost everyone I talked to agreed those vaccines should be reserved for frontline health care workers. But after that, if there really is a shortage, who's next? Other essential workers? Vermont's elders? People with suppressed immune systems? What about racial minorities? In Vermont, black people have gotten COVID-19 at 11 times the rate of white people. Giving priority to higher risk populations would include, in this case, also looking at racially diverse communities. Maria Mercedes Avila is an associate professor of pediatrics and the health equity liaison at the Larner College of Medicine at UVM. She joins a chorus of experts who say some racial minorities should also get priority access. Children under nine who tested positive for COVID-19, of those children, 68 percent are children who are racially diverse. That's a very alarming statistic for the second whitest state in the country. So many groups have valid reasons to want to be near the front of the COVID vaccine line. Which brings us back to Roger Stone's question. How is this going to be settled out? Is there a committee? Is there a governor? How does that work? Sure. I'm Christine Finley, and I'm the immunization program manager at the health department. Finley is pretty familiar with this process. She's one of 31 liaisons to the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or HIP. It's the group that writes federal guidelines for vaccines. 
Finley represents immunization managers across the country, alongside the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Academy of Family Physicians, the Council on State and Territorial Epidemiologists, the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service. They and 15 voting members, almost all of whom are doctors, break out into more than a dozen work groups to look at all aspects of vaccines, their safety, their efficacy, who should get them, when. The committee then writes and votes on vaccine guidance, which it sends to the CDC. And that's the guidance that is expected to be followed by all healthcare providers. All of the things that you just described to me, is any of that different for COVID? Um, yes, <laughs> it's a little bit. <laughs> okay. Every, everything's different for COVID. Well, a couple of things. So, For one, Finley's group has been meeting monthly online rather than the usual three times a year in Atlanta. And she says the information is coming from researchers with a speed that's altogether new. But most different is that this time a second group is doing similar work at the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine. They're focusing especially on issues of equity. And then somehow together these two groups will issue federal guidance? By October, they're hoping. After that, whenever the vaccine is available, the federal government will pay for and distribute it to each jurisdiction according to population size and other factors. That's according to the CDC. Once that happens, it'll be up to people like Christine Finley to figure out how to get the right number of doses to the people at the top of the list. And whoever those people are, many will likely be getting them from UVA Medical Center the largest medical provider, and the largest employer in Vermont. I know that conversations about the fair distribution of the vaccine are already starting. Tim Leahy is a vaccine researcher and the director of ethics at the medical center. He says hospital leadership has asked the state to convene stakeholders to discuss vaccine access. I'm interested in the idea that that UVM Medical Center may have like kind of initiated this conversation. Does that? Do you think that came from a place of being very attentive to healthcare workers' safety? Or is that like, we're going to have to deal with the public and we want some guidance here, please? <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> Leahy says hospitals don't have to deal with scarcity very often. And there will be a lot of scrutiny around vaccine distribution. Hospital officials don't want to be the only ones involved. Leahy, of course, is trained in medical ethics. He understands as well as anyone the challenges facing the committee members writing vaccine guidance. And in his mind, vaccines are different from organ transplants or ventilators. He says you can't just think about who is at most risk of dying. Because if we found out that you can't contain the epidemic without vaccinating people in their 20s and 30s who are perfectly healthy, then we have to prioritize those people because the point is to save lives. And then Leahy brings up another complicating factor, which actually works against people like Roger Stone, the 79-year-old question asker, and Heidi Hopper, whose immune system is compromised by her chemotherapy. Almost all vaccines have less effective responses from people who are immune compromised and elderly. And so you get into this interesting conundrum where... Elderly people need protection from influenza the most. They need protection from COVID-19 the most. But they're also less likely to have a great response to the vaccine. And so the ideal population level response probably is a combination of giving it to people who are most at high risk and giving it to people who are most likely to respond. This is news to me. 
And the concept of prioritizing at the population level rather than the individual, Leahy says it's one reason certain racial minorities should get prioritized for the vaccine. Leahy says that's different when you're talking about ventilators. At two o'clock in the morning, when two people are vying for one ventilator, you really cannot know which of those people has suffered more injustice. Vaccination is different. We know that that race is a marker of risk of severe COVID-19, and we want to distribute the vaccine preferentially to people who are most at risk so that we can save the most lives possible. And vaccination is a population-level intervention. Ideally, Leahy says, there will be enough vaccine for everyone to access ASAP. That is still a possibility. But if there isn't, it's not really up to UVM Medical Center to decide who gets priority. It's up to the CDC and the National Academies of Science and their committees, who are in the midst of eternal video conferences hashing all this out. Okay, I think... uh we have everyone here and COVID-19 uh, include I, adults age 65 years and older, long-term care facility residents. Thank you. I'm just thinking about return to school and wondering if there were discussions. As seen about- in the left-hand figure, people with lower income occupations are generally less likely to be able to work from home and thus have a greater so risk of exposure. We're going to take a three-minute break here and then we're going to proceed to a public comment. But wait. All of this concern about who gets the vaccine first, it's premised on an assumption, one I didn't think much about until I talked to Linda. My name is Linda Goodman. I have a rare blood cancer called Waldenstrom's. It's a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Goodman is in the same support group as Heidi Hopper, the cancer survivor who works in elementary schools. Only Goodman is not gunning to be first in line for a COVID-19 vaccine. It's an interesting question that you ask, who should have priority? The question is, who is it safe for more than who should have priority? And when the vaccine came out, I would not get it initially until it had been out for X period of time. So I knew what the side effects would be. Goodman was open to the vaccine until she heard a segment on a Sirius XM radio station called Dr. Radio. That's where she learned that even though the vaccines are going through the traditional phase three 30,000 person clinical trials, very rare side effects or those affecting small segments of the population may not be understood until hundreds of thousands of people have received the vaccine. And because of her cancer, Linda says, she doesn't want to go first. Plus, she says, she's lucky. I have this amazing home that looks out into many, many acres, including water. She has a husband who does the shopping and keeps her company. She's willing to be cloistered away. But what she brought up, this fear that the vaccine won't be safe, it's more prevalent than I had understood. And it's more prevalent than doctors and public health officials like Christine Finley would like. They named uh, the whole piece about the vaccine on the federal level Operation Warp Speed. I don't think there could be a worse name that you could name something because I think that it just says, oh, gosh, they're really rushing it. And it misses what's going on. In the trials that they're doing, the standard is that you want 30,000 people in those trials They are going to have 30,000 people. They are not cutting the size of the population that that is going to be in the trials. In fact, I can 
send you to a website where they're recruiting for that. Finley also notes that in a poll done by the AP and the University of Chicago, only half of American adults said they would definitely get a COVID-19 vaccine when it comes out. Uh, We need to do better than that if we want to achieve herd immunity. As a liaison to the CDC working group, Finley is watching the sausage get made. And she says it's made her confident the vaccine will be safe. In the meantime, she and the committees figuring all this out are left with two contradictory but equally important mandates. One, to figure out how to save the most lives with a small amount of vaccine. And two, how to convince people to come and get it. For Brave Little State, I'm Emily Corwin. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Roger Stone for the great question. If you have a question about COVID in Vermont or anything else, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We're on Instagram and Twitter at BraveStateVT. This episode was produced by Emily Corwin with editing from Mark Davis. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. Our digital producer is Elodie Reed, and we have engineering support from Chris Albertine. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.